G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. And uh, Dr. Denise Cooper-Clark joining us for the coming hour. Hello, Denise. Welcome along to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Denise, uh, it's a report that was released in Victoria, but I imagine that the sorts of things reflected in this report are being discussed by governments around the nation. Well, yes. Uh, Well, they have been. There have been various attempts over the last years in pretty much all of the state legislatures um, to attempt some kind of either euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide legislation. And the... um, in the federal parliament, in the Senate, there's a bill um, being discussed at the moment, introduced by the Greens. But can I just clarify one thing? This, this report was from the um, Legal and Social Issues Committee. It recommends that the government introduce a framework for assisted dying, but the Victorian government hasn't made any decision on that. They have um, six months to respond to the report, and they may or may not decide to accept its recommendations. Of course, I and, and many other people are hoping that it won't. Well, there are a number of nations around the world who have moved towards uh, the le- legislation uh, that has made uh, euthanasia uh, legal. When you talk about assisted dying and euthanasia, uh, some people would be thinking in the you know those are the same things, aren't they? But there, there's differences there. Well, um, assisted dying is now the preferred term for people who, who are advocating it. I think because it avoids using suicide, the term suicide, which has negative connotations. In fact, some people are arguing now that assisted dying um, isn't suicide, but it clearly is because the patient chooses to end their life and the physician-assisted part of it comes through the doctor writing a prescription for them for a medication which they can then take. Um, In Victoria, the um, proposed legislative changes are for allowing doctor-assisted suicide, but in cases where the patient is physically unable to take the medication, then it it would allow for um, the doctor actually giving the lethal injection, say, which would normally be called euthanasia. Okay, and it's uh, it's right to say, isn't it, that there are no states or territories in Australia that actually have uh, the idea of euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide. That's the case at the present time, isn't it? That is the case at the present time, although, of course, some people will remember that in 1997, for seven months, euthanasia was legal in the Northern Territory. That's right, and... Uh, So when we come to the issue, Denise, as Christian believers, uh, there are some moral principles which are relevant here from our Christian faith perspective. Uh, What is the most important thing to appreciate as a Christian when thinking about this issue? Well, I think there are a number of important things. Um, So maybe just working on the principle that I learned when I was um, studying with a very eminent philosopher, um, 
he taught me that you should always need to attend to or pay attention um, to the losing argument. So there are a whole range of arguments that are, apply in thinking about this issue. And if you decide eventually on balance to go against the idea of legalising euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, that doesn't mean that there aren't some strong arguments for it. And I think there are some strong arguments for it. So on that principle of attending to the losing argument, I think the first thing to say is that the really strong argument for some form of assisted dying is the suffering that some people feel um, and experience, very real suffering as they're dying. And we shouldn't try to minimise that or um, say that it doesn't exist or say that it can always be dealt with because you can't. And um, dying is always going to be painful. Well, not always painful, but often painful. Sometimes people die suddenly in their sleep and, and there's no pain or suffering involved. Of course, there is for the people who are bereaved. So that's the first thing to say that I completely understand and I think we ought to appreciate the argument for euthanasia based on um, people's experience of having seen someone they love die in a bad way. And if we decide that we don't uh, want to legalise euthanasia, then we need to take account of that. We need to do everything we can to minimise the suffering of people as they're dying. And in that respect, this uh, report is, is to be welcomed because, as you said in your introduction, it does make 29 recommendations in relation to palliative care, um, improving access to palliative care, especially in rural and remote areas and uh, for Indigenous communities, for instance, um, that kind of thing, increasing the funding because palliative care is not adequately funded, increasing funding for community palliative care so that people can die at home if they wish to rather than in hospital, a whole um, raft of recommendations that are to be welcomed in relation to improving the standard of palliative care so that nobody has to ask for assisted suicide um, because they're not getting the um, medical care, the palliative care that is needed to, to reduce their suffering. Well, Denise, we've got a growing old population and uh, baby boomers uh, getting towards retirement years and and uh, the ageing population, a lot of us might have ageing parents, uh, ageing relatives, ageing siblings, and uh, all of these things are going to become more and more prominent, aren't they, in the years to come because uh, we're all going to be concerned about uh, our own relatives and when we haven't had the... Uh, we haven't had to address these issues perhaps before ourselves, so these are going to become more and more prominent as the population ages. Well, yes, and it's interesting that the ageing population now is increasingly being made up of baby boomers, which is my own age group. Yeah. And baby boomers um, you know, have a number of characteristics that people ascribe to them as being very selfish, um, and in fact, baby boomers are being accused of keeping young people out of the housing market, that kind of thing. But um, baby boomers also characterised by um, a very strong commitment to personal choice and freedom. Um, and so that's the other thing that drives the euthanasia debate. The other strong argument for assisted dying, and certainly it was very influential in the thinking of this 
report, the parliamentary report, is the idea that people want maximum freedom of choice at the end of their life. And to a certain extent, I think we can say, yes, people should have some freedom of choice. Um, people's wishes should be respected. But there are two different ways of thinking about that. One is to say that people should have the maximum amount of choice in terms of um, types of treatment that they're willing to have, um, the choice to refuse treatments that they find would be overly burdensome, uh, so that people can choose if they wish um, to to uh, not have treatment which might potentially save their life and, and therefore they die earlier and that's okay. People can refuse treatment. Um, but the other way of thinking about this maximising choice is that people can choose to actually die when they want to and that somebody ought to help them. And I think that's quite a different thing. Well, I want to invite our listeners to participate in the conversation. If you are someone who's been faced with uh, this issue, uh, perhaps uh, people who are close to you who are going through uh, the end of their life, of dying, and as a Christian, what sort of things were you thinking about and were you forced uh, to think about and make decisions about when it comes to these sorts of issues? Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of things too. There's grey areas, aren't there, Denise, uh, when we talk about this whole idea of assisted dying because uh, because at the end of people's lives, uh, oftentimes uh, there are these sorts of uh, ways that people who are helping at home or uh, what the doctor might uh, give you as advice, all of these things are a part of the way that we think about this issue, but it's not necessarily euthanasia, uh, but there are grey areas. Yes. Um, I think the grey areas are probably less than some people make out. But certainly sometimes Christians are confused or um, suspicious of what we might call letting die kind of decisions. And there are two main ways that, that we might say people can be allowed to die. One is through uh, foregoing potentially life-saving treatment. So, for instance, if someone is, is on a ventilator... Uh, if someone is on dialysis, if someone is, and this is a bit more controversial, if it's being fed artificially, um, they can, if they are competent, refuse those treatments, even though they know that if they stop them, most likely they'll die. But that's something that patients have always been able to do. Nobody should be treated against their will. And if people decide that treatment is overly burdensome, um, or that it is actually futile, sometimes doctors will decide that, then it's perfectly okay for that treatment to be withdrawn and for what we usually say, to let nature take its course. The other way that sometimes people um, are suspicious about uh, end-of-life decisions is when people are on large doses of pain-relieving pain medication and... Um, there is a, a legally accepted doctrine that if people are administered large doses of pain-relieving medication but the intention is not to kill them but to relieve their pain, then that is acceptable. And that's been accepted by Christians for a long time, that the intention with which you give something is, is important. But as you say, sometimes it's difficult to work out someone's intention. So perhaps we might be a bit suspicious if people are on large doses. Um, but the doctors who work in this area say, actually, 
it's quite easy to determine what someone's intention is by looking at the way that the dose is prescribed and if it's increased gradually so that the patient is, um, becomes accustomed to that dose, tolerates that dose, they're quite confident that nobody has to be killed in order to relieve their pain. We are taking calls and uh, we'll start taking calls in just a few moments. But to come back to uh, the foundation of why a Christian would take sides on this euthanasia debate and resist the idea of legislation uh, that there might be uh, euthanasia, uh, the idea of the value of human life, uh, where we get those sorts of values from, Denise, uh, what are your thoughts on, on, on the Christian values of, of valuing life? Yes, well, you're right. This is actually the fundamental principle that I think should, um, in the end, outweigh other considerations when we're considering legalising euthanasia or assisted dying. Um, The sacredness of human life is a core, fundamental principle of Christian ethics going right back to Genesis. It's based on the Genesis accounts of humankind being created in the image of God. And so this is really a very foundational, fundamental principle that tells us that every human being is given a kind of status by being made in God's image. And the kind of picture that we have in Genesis is of the Garden of Eden as a temple. Now in pagan temples, the image of the God was a statue The statue was placed in the temple and nobody would touch that statue. In fact, they would worship the statue in many cases because it represents the God. In the Garden of Eden, God doesn't place a statue of himself. In fact, we're forbidden to make any statues or images of God because humans actually are the image of God, the icon of God, the representative of God. And therefore, to attack that image, to do violence to that image, to, to kill someone is, is in a representative or symbolic way to attack God himself. And that's what Genesis 9 tells us, that that is the basis of the prohibition of murder, that human, each human is made in the image of God. You can go further than that, we could say that there is nothing about the human that qualifies that. We don't have to be young, we don't have to be fit, you don't have to be um, in our right mind. We can be quite disabled. We can be elderly, frail. We can be very young and vulnerable. Um, and we still bear the image of God and our life is of equal value. Well, we might come back to those very important points uh, through our conversation as well. But we are taking calls at one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you'd like to interact today, our special guest is Dr. Denise Cooper Clark. We're talking through the issues of euthanasia, and uh, we've begun to talk about what's happened uh, with the release of what's called the End of Life, Life Choices Report in Victoria. It was tabled in the Victorian Parliament this month. Let's take a call from Adam in Victoria. Hello, Adam. Welcome along to 2020. Hey, Alan. Good, Adam. What are your thoughts on our conversation today? Um, so I'm a, I'm a nurse that works in aged care myself, and I'm just curious, like, when we deal with people that have got end of life or going through palliative care, um, I'm just curious to know, you know, when doc, when you're sort of trying to get pain relief for residents, doctors are very reluctant to provide that, 
I'm just wondering how collectively doctors uh, see this issue morally and how they, you know, how they see it to, you know, come to pass. If they're reluctant to already provide pain relief, are they morally reluctant to, uh, yeah, to want to assist someone in dying? Good question. Uh, your thoughts, Denise? Well, um, doctors aren't a uniform group. Um, there will be some doctors who support assisted dying and some doctors who don't quite know what they think about it and some doctors who are quite opposed to it. Traditionally, the medical profession has been opposed to it for thousands of years, but uh, that is changing in some ways. I think I know that the AMA is in the process of revisiting their statement on euthanasia. But so really I can't generalise about what doctors um, would be thinking about this, although some surveys seem to indicate that there is less support for euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide amongst doctors than there is in the general population. And it's also true that the doctors that have, who have the most to do with dying patients, that is um, palliative care physicians and cancer specialists, uh, tend to have more opposition to euthanasia than, than uh, doctors in general, which is perhaps surprising. Adam from Victoria, uh, let me just ask you a question. As working as a nurse in aged care, uh, and you mentioned a reluctance of doctors to actually provide uh, pain relief, uh, is that something that uh, that that is is normal in uh, in aged care and uh, and for people who are at the end of their life? Uh, Adam, you, can you enlarge on that at all as to the the things that you've observed? Um, yeah, because they're doctors. As I've seen from my own personal experience, they're very worried about uh, reducing people's respiration rates, as morphine often does. Um, so they're worried about, yeah, you know, that they're actually assisting someone in dying as it is. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Denise, uh, is that something that, uh, that doctors often are con- considerate of, is that they may actually, by administering uh, pain relief, may actually be uh, hastening the death of that person? Yes, this is what I was talking about before, the, the doctrine of double effect. Um, if doctors are concerned about that, it's, it's very unfortunate because, as I said before, I think we should be doing everything we can to relieve people's suffering. And all of the evidence shows that adequate pain relief does not shorten life necessarily. Certainly in the hands of people who are experienced with pain relief, that is palliative care physicians primarily, they are very confident that they can administer adequate pain relief and not shorten people's lives. In fact, some studies have shown that adequate pain relief actually prolongs life. But it is a very common myth in the community and even amongst doctors that too much pain relief or pain relief that's adequate might kill the patient. Now, of course, you can kill a patient with too much morphine, but that's by giving them a, a suddenly giving them a large dose. If you use gradually increasing doses, you titrate the dose and um, you gradually increase it, then there is no need to worry that you are going to kill the patient. And it's really unfortunate if doctors are not giving people adequate pain relief because they're worried about that. Life, 
Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. And a conversation around the issues of euthanasia this hour, the End of Life Choices document. The report was tabled in the Victorian Parliament this month. Dr. Denise Cooper-Clark is our guest. And talking through these issues, uh, Denise, let's take a call from Shelby in Queensland. Hello, Shelby. Welcome along. Yes, hello, Neil and uh, Dr. Clark, um, Cooper-Clark. Denise, um, yeah, I'm very much, uh, Neil, and uh, in favour of the, the Christian point of view, um, not to euthanise. I have a um, very ill um, twin sister. Um, yes, I'm in the baby boomers, and um, uh, she's been in a nursing home for 17 years, um, and on three occasions, two very serious occasions, um, she was on her deathbed. Um, the doctors were calling me, and... Um, um, every hour at one stage to say, look, we, we won't operate because her body would not take the shock of the operation and that all they would do is keep her comfortable and um, even though they were giving her antibiotics, um, um, they, um, they were just going to keep her comfortable and just see, if, you know, let, let her own body decide and her own will decide if, if she would pull through. Well, with prayers and that, she has pulled through both times. Um, it's been painful for myself especially, um, but I, I could never pull the trigger on her. Uh, it's a, an emotional topic to talk about when you've got people who are so close to you. Uh, some thoughts from Denise. Yeah, this is really, really difficult story, and I'm very sorry to hear about your sister. Um, and I think that you are quite right to, um, to, to allow nature to take its course, or for Christians, we would say leave people's lives in God's hand. Um, and when God chooses to take someone, that's the right time. But yes, it is so different from actually deciding, from taking matters into your own hands and deciding that that, that person is going to die. And Shelby, something important that you shared uh, on two occasions where it looked like uh, your sister was going to die, uh, she pulled through both times. Uh, some thoughts from Denise perhaps on, on the fact that people do recover and that sometimes families can be, in the sense of their emotional grief almost, uh, ready to actually pull the plug. Well, this is one of the major differences, of course, between letting someone die and killing them. Um, if you to let someone die, they may in fact not die. Um, you're leaving the option open, but when you choose to kill them, you're closing off that option. Um, but sometimes, yes, when people continue to live, um, we might find ourselves in the position of thinking, well, you know, maybe it would have been better if they had died, if their life is really difficult. Don't think there's anything wrong with praying for people to be released um, and, and asking God take them um, but we still basically need to leave it up to God to answer our prayers in, in the way that he knows best Shelby from Sunnybank, thanks so much for your input today here on 2020. Our talkback line remains open on 1-800-316-316. You might have your own thoughts. You might have a question. 
Uh, you might have your own story to tell when it comes to these sorts of issues at end of life. Uh, we are talking through issues to do with euthanasia, and our special guest is Dr. Denise Cooper-Clark. Uh, this issue of palliative care, very important one, Denise, because uh, sometimes I, I suspect it's it's quite misunderstood. And uh, and is it just about relieving pain? Or uh, I mean, we've been hearing some things from our listeners, uh, but this relief of pain at the end of life uh, is that the is that the goal of someone who has a pro-life attitude to end of life issues? Palliative care is about much, much more than relieving pain. It's about caring for the whole person. And so a palliative care team is a multidisciplinary team. There are doctors and nurses, social workers, and often chaplains. So the idea is to help people um, as they face um, their own death to deal with it, to deal with any of the issues and problems that that come up for them. And it's it's about much more than pain, physical pain. Um, often the um, thing that people find the hardest to deal with is the fear um, and anxiety um, about what might happen at the end of their life. We have a lot of, um, well, for many people, their idea of what happens when people die comes from films or um, television programs and Sometimes people think that at the end of life, particularly if you're dying of cancer, that it will necessarily be very painful. It's not necessarily the case at all. But there are other symptoms that people have other than pain, shortness of breath, nausea, um, that can be quite difficult to manage. Palliative care is designed to help people with those things, but also to help them to work through all the issues that come up. Denise, I'll have to cut in because we're about to go to news. Uh, encourage listeners uh, 1-800-316-316 to join our conversation. Our special guest is Dr Denise Cooper-Clark, who's a graduate of medicine and theology with a PhD in medical ethics. She teaches medical ethics at the University of Melbourne. She's also a researcher with Ethos, the Evangelical Alliance Centre for Christianity and Society. You can be part of our conversation. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. As we uh, continue in our conversation, Denise, uh, the issue of justice, uh, there is a significant issue of justice when it comes around this uh, euthanasia debate. Uh, From a biblical perspective, what are your thoughts about uh, the emphasis on uh, advocating for protecting uh, uh, vulnerable and powerless people? Yes, I think this is really the second big reason why Christians um, should oppose legalising assisted dying. And we've already talked about the argument from the sacredness of human life, but that's an argument that's not necessarily going to, um, to be persuasive in a secular society. But the argument from a justice perspective is a very powerful argument And in fact, it's the argument that has essentially prevented euthanasia or assisted dying from being legalised in many jurisdictions around the world. From a biblical perspective, justice has got a strong emphasis, as you said, of of being about protecting vulnerable and powerless people. And in our society, the elderly, the sick and the disabled are amongst those who are vulnerable and powerless. So when we're thinking about legislation, and this has been acknowledged even in the report, that we need to try to protect people who are vulnerable. 
This report thinks that it can do that by putting in various safeguards. In fact, they claim that research shows from overseas that robust oversight and reporting will guard against abuse um, and, that, and that concerns about abuse are not real. Well, that claim is in fact highly contested. Um, many people looking at the evidence of what's happening overseas would say, no, in fact, it's being abused. And in fact, effective safeguards from a legal point of view are simply not possible. The reason for that is that the doctor-patient relationship is an entirely private relationship protected by confidentiality. And whatever a doctor chooses to report um, is basically their choice. I don't think that the safeguards that this report is proposing are going to be effective enough. In fact, I don't think that any safeguards anywhere could actually be effective. But this report does take seriously the idea of trying to uh, protect the vulnerable. So unlike in some other jurisdictions, they've said that the person asking for assisted dying must be over the age of 18. They don't want to have children um, asking for euthanasia. They must have the capacity to make decisions, that is, they must have the mental ability, cognitive capacity, to be able to think through the decision and to understand what it means and so that they can make that decision. That would exclude, obviously, people um, who are intellectually disabled or handicapped and it would exclude people who have Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia. They've said that these people must be at the end of their life, that is, final weeks or months, so they don't actually specify an exact time, as other jurisdictions have done. They said they must be suffering from a serious and incurable condition. They said that they must be suffering as a, uh, that suffering as a result of mental illness only does not uh, satisfy eligibility, in contrast to some other jurisdictions where quite famously people who have had no physical illness at all, but only severe mental illness, have been euthanized. And then, of course, they say the patient must be making a voluntary decision free from coercion. Um, but there are some problems. I think there are some problems. So there are proposed safeguards, uh, but what you're essentially saying is that uh, there is no effective safeguard that is possible. And, uh, and that would be based on the fact that uh, other nations, uh, some other nations, have actually legalised euthanasia and, uh, and there'd be uh, evidence that that's the case. Yes, that's right. In fact, there's two kinds of ways of arguing about this. One is a kind of empirical argument, which says, well, look at where assisted dying is taking place overseas. We can see, just as a matter of fact, that the criteria for eligibility have been expanded as time goes on. And the Netherlands is probably one of the best examples. Now, in the Netherlands, they have euthanasia, not just physician-assisted suicide. But when it was first proposed, it was developed as a kind of extreme measure or uh, um, something that could take place for extraordinary, exceptional circumstances. Severe pain that um, couldn't be relieved in any way at all. What's happening now in the Netherlands, they've expanded it to, from adults to children, they've expanded it from people who are physically unwell to people who are only well, when I say only, of course, the suffering from mental illness can be very, very severe. But they've expanded it to people who have mental illness. And 
one commentator has said that what began as an exception has now become almost normal. One in 25 deaths in the Netherlands is now the consequence of assisted dying. He says it's become the preferred mode of death for people with cancer. So that's no longer an exceptional or an unusual circumstance. And that's just something that we can see that has happened. Um, uh, so sometimes when we talk about a slippery slope, what we're saying is that uh, there might be some safeguards uh, if that sort of thing is legislated for, but that's likely to change as different circumstances arise. Yes, I think we can say that it is likely to change um, because that's what's happened in other places. And even uh, after this report was released, almost, well, within a few days, people were writing and saying, no, these safeguards are too restrictive. Uh, For instance, people were saying, what about people with Alzheimer's? They wouldn't meet the criteria. And yet um, it is argued that people with Alzheimer's ought to be able to access physician-assisted suicidal euthanasia. You can see how the argument goes. What starts out as quite strict criteria can be eroded in time. We are taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Robin in Mount Morgan. Hi, Robin. Welcome along. Uh, yes, hi. Um, I wasn't going to speak about this, but, I mean, you've heard me many times. I've talked. Um, I've been suicidal many, many times in my life, but when I come out of it, um, I'm really glad that I didn't. And the other thing is I see the eternal perspective, and this is what I wanted to say, because when I was psych nursing, um, well, I'm just saying in general, when people are in pain or without hope in the natural, that's when they have a chance to find God and to to see um, the the eternal perspective. Anyway, I had a patient um, who was dying from cancer, a lady, and um, she was in a lot of pain and was asking me for more drugs and I, I couldn't legally give her any more. So I just said to her, why don't you call out on God? And now I normally didn't do that in in the psych hospital um talk about spiritual matters unless i felt i had to or the patient elicited some conversation that way so but this was one occasion where i knew i had to say something when i said to her um why don't you just call out on god uh, she said um i don't deserve him um she had killed her husband and that was why she was in the psychiatric hospital but um, I said to her, none of us deserve him, and I just gave her the, the the gospel, and she was trying to push me away and try, and she was crying and whatever. But I, um, I said to her, look, I'm just going to tell you this, and then I'm going to leave you. And I, I did that. She reported me. I got in lots of trouble. But months later, I was back in that ward, and uh, she was still alive, and she thanked me and she apologised for what she. She grabbed my hand and she said, I'm sorry, and. Um, and I noticed that this other little uh, patient, a girl, Christian, we used to sit at her um, bedside every day talking to her. So, um, you know, and I've seen, and then straight after that, the first happening, I, there was another girl patient that tried to commit suicide. And, and I just, I, she wanted to go to bed early. I locked her in a room and um, just as I was coming away, I sort of sensed something, so I opened the door again and there she had the sheet tied up over the top of um you know and uh, the the other, you know the window and the other end over her neck and as soon as I um stopped her she said nobody loves me and uh, again I I felt I had to say and I said God loves you then straight away because she's she's mentally ill and hears voices and whatever so she was saying but God took my brother and because he committed suicide as well 
Uh, Robin, some good stories there, and I'll just uh, I'll bring Denise into the conversation. There's an issue of hope uh, where a Christian insight comes into uh, all sorts of issues, and I'm sure end of life care uh, is the same if you're able to introduce hope into the equation. But uh, uh, your thoughts on what Robin is sharing, Denise? Well, yes, I think you're right. Um, for, For Christians, their attitude towards death is going to be quite different. But even uh, for people who don't have any belief, it's been recognised that one of the main drivers of um, suicidal thoughts in people who are physically unwell is a hope, sense of hopelessness, um, a sense that, that their life doesn't have any meaning anymore. And there's been various um, programs and, and mechanisms or methods, I should say, of people helping people at the end of their life to reflect on their life and to recover a sense of hope and a sense of meaning. And that's very important. And it can re- it can alleviate a great deal of the ex- emotional suffering that happens at the end of life. And sometimes it can remove that desire to die. But um, it's a very sensitive topic, the whole topic of suicide. I'm glad you've brought it up because... The relationship between physician-assisted suicide and suicide that isn't assisted is is a complex one. Um, Some people have said, well, if we introduce physician-assisted suicide, we'll we'll reduce the rate at which elderly people kill themselves in very distressing ways. But actually there is no evidence that that would occur at all. In fact, quite the opposite. So in Oregon, a state in the US, which has the closest kind of law to what is being proposed in Victoria, that is physician-assisted suicide, um, what's happened since the law was introduced is that an increasing number of people have died using that law. But the rate of suicide, which excludes physician-assisted suicide, has also continued to rise. And it's highest amongst the elderly, In fact, Oregon has one of the highest suicide rates in the whole of the United States, and the highest rate is amongst males aged 85 and older. So this argument that somehow helping people to die um, with medicine will stop them from taking their lives in other ways, it just doesn't work, even though some people feel intuitively that perhaps it would. It really doesn't. Thank you so much to Robin from Mount Morgan for your insights there and uh, Robin who shared that she had on occasion uh, sought to commit suicide and uh, and had regretted afterwards when she'd come back to uh, what we might call a, you know, a sense of uh, normality, uh, that she was glad that she hadn't gone that way. Is that the case too, Denise, that, uh, that people, of, of, you know, when they get to a point where they're faced with these sorts of realities and these decisions that they can make, uh, that once uh, they're past the worst of what they're going through and perhaps the pain has subsided, that they're actually glad they didn't uh, make any decisions that would have been detrimental to their own uh, uh, safety? I don't... I don't know that there's any data in relation to that with um, dying patients but as I said at the moment because um, euthanasia is illegal uh, that gives people the space and the time uh, to consider what their other options are. If they know that the doctor can't help them to die then they then are able to work through what are the things that are 
making me feel this way, that are making me feel this sense of despair and hopelessness. And um, they can then uh, work through those things. There are a lot of things that people are very glad to be able to do when they're dying. Sounds odd, but some people have even written uh, articles along the line of don't waste your dying, or dying was the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, a <laughs> slightly tongue-in-cheek, but what they're saying is when you face your own mortality, you have to face a whole lot of really important issues in your life. It can be a time to sort out relationships, for instance, to, to make contact with people that you've perhaps, um, your relationship has been broken off and you can make contact with people you can have an opportunity for uh, um, repentance and forgiveness even in a totally secular setting you can say I'm sorry that for the way I treated you and you can um, make your peace with that person it's a time for reconnecting with family often um, it's a time for considering what's really important in your life all those kind of things can happen when someone's dying that old saying, there are no atheists on death row. Uh, is uh-huh. that a, a reality as well for people thinking about uh, eternal issues in their dying days? I wouldn't. I think that's a big claim. Um, some people, if they have made a considered choice to reject God, will, will be steadfast in that choice to the end. Um, and uh, that's, that's a sad reality, mm-hmm. but... It's also true that people who have perhaps not thought about it much um, can sometimes re- reconsider matters of faith and um, that, that the pain, um, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said pain is God's megaphone. Um, the pain, not just the physical pain, but the existential pain can force them to rethink um, spiritual things. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. This is 2020 on Vision Christian Radio. Dr. Denise Cooper-Clark is our guest this hour. We've been talking about the issue of euthanasia. We'll have time for another call or two very quickly. But, uh, Denise, we're on to a, a topic here. And uh, when people talk about euthanasia or, uh, and the, the similarity to assisted suicide, and then all of a sudden you're on to uh, suicide in general, there are some uh, some real, uh, you, know, uh, you know, you're walking on uh, on difficult ground at times talking about these issues. Yes. Um, some, some of the listeners might be aware that... Uh, the media person, Andrew Denton, uh, produced a 17 or 18 episode podcast about the issue of assisted dying. And he's very much, he's very much in favour of legalising assisted suicide. But it was interesting at um, the start of each podcast, there was a little voiceover that said, this is not about suicide. If you are feeling suicidal, contact Lifeline and gave a number of numbers. But that's the big problem. It is, it is about suicide. And my concern about legalising assisted suicide is that basically we are saying to people, well, in some circumstances, suicide is okay. In fact, it's so okay that we'll help you do it. It's sanctioning suicide, both by the state and also by the medical profession. Now, even today in the paper I read this morning that um, Bill Shorten has promised some money for suicide prevention. I think the Liberal Party has done the same thing. 
suicide prevention is a very, very important area. And governments are saying, we want to prevent suicide. But at the same time, they're thinking about legalising some kinds of suicide. I think that's sending a very mixed message, a very dangerous message. It's really saying, well, we'll try to talk you out of suicide. We'll really try to prevent it if you if you meet certain criteria. But if you're old, if you're dying, if you're disabled, well, in fact, we might agree with you that you're better off dead and we'll help you to commit suicide. I think that's a very dangerous message. There are contradictory messages in what you've just described. As uh, Let's come back uh, to perhaps as we've drawn some loose ends together and as we try to uh, you know, just make sense in these last few minutes of where Christians stand in this issue because uh, we'll all grow old and die one day. And uh, there are those who have have, uh, ageing parents, as we started talking about a little earlier, and uh, siblings and people who are are going through all sorts of intense pain and suffering in their older and dying years, uh, that that there are challenges that we have as Christian believers. So, uh, So rather than be swayed one way or another, just according to what wind of of policy might be being discussed, come back to those Christian foundations, the sacredness of life uh, that Christians hold very dearly, Denise. Uh, how do you describe those things as we just draw a close to our conversation? Yes, so we've talked about the principles that are involved, the principle of justice and the principle of sacredness of life. Those are the two big principles that I think in the end outweigh the other important principles of giving people choice and of relief of suffering. I think the way that we can express our commitment to the sacredness of life, as you say, with elderly relatives and friends, is by valuing their life and by supporting them and affirming them and being with them as much as we can so that they don't feel the sense of abandonment and hopelessness, which is one of the big drivers of asking for assisted dying. Okay. And Denise, you've written about uh, the issues that are going on in Victoria now. And of course, as you say, about six months before uh, any recommendations may be adopted by the Victorian Parliament. But where can people get a, a, a look in on the article that you've written uh, with regard to uh, these issues at, at this present time? Uh, well, I've written an article for the Melbourne Anglican, which is the official newsletter of the uh, Anglican Diocese of Melbourne. And I think that will be appearing in the next edition. I think it will also go on, up online on their online portal. Okay. Um, but I've also written a number of articles, and there are a number of articles by other people on the Ethos website. So I would encourage people to have a look at that. And of course, Ethos, the Evangelical Alliance Centre for Christianity and Society. And if you Google Ethos, you'll come across that site. And I think there's a good search box there that people can actually just put your name in, Dr. Denise Cooper-Clark, or perhaps even just typing in the issue of euthanasia and uh, you'll get access to the articles and uh, some good, well-researched articles there that you'll find on the site of the Ethos website. Ethos, the Evangelical Alliance Centre for Christianity 
humanity and society. Uh, Dr. Denise Cooper-Clark, just great getting your insights today. And it's it's an issue that we have to talk about from time to time and one that it's certainly valuable for Christians to understand where we stand when it comes to being made in the image and likeness of God and the importance of the value on human life. It, uh, It grounds us in so many different ways and gives us a solid platform on which to stand to make sense of all of the different types of legislation that might be uh, coming across our news media. Uh, Denise, just great getting your insights and thank you so much for being with us on 2020. Thank you, Neil. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.